John 17, 1 through 3. This is the passage we will meditate on today for communion. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray together. Lord, as Deb reminded us this morning, we don't come through a prophet. We come through your son. We come directly to you through Jesus Christ. And so we ask you in Jesus' name to glorify yourself, just as Jesus prayed here in our midst this morning, to show us you through Jesus. And may our hearts be changed for having beheld you. May we, through beholding the glory of the Lord, be changed from glory to glory. God, show us your heart through your Son. Have mercy on me as I preach, to preach with honor and truth, and to treat your word as holy. Protect, Lord, us from error. Protect me from preaching error or from my family and you from hearing error. Anyone gathered here, through the Holy Spirit, convict us afresh that you are and that you reward those who seek you. For it is impossible without faith to please you. So, Lord, give us faith by allowing us to see afresh your Son, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we approach his, his gift, this holy and loving gift from the Father, I want to start out with a question that I hope will help us enjoy the Lord's Supper today. And the question is simply, or questions, do you know what glory means? And do you know what it means to bring glory to something? And I think we need to know because it's so pervasive in Scripture. Just a very small smattering of examples. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus says in John 14, 
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. I could go on and on through passage after passage that tell us that God created us for his glory or that our salvation is to the praise of his glory. And all these passages reinforce this importance of knowing what it means to bring glory to God. But if you're like me, glory to God may feel like an elusive idea. It's, it's like one of those Bible words. We talked about this a month ago when we had communion. We talked about the word holy. It, it's so important. It's everywhere. But we can presume because of familiarity, superficially, that we know what it means without really knowing what it means. I remember, and I, I probably told you guys this at some point, reading some book that everything in my life was supposed to be for God's glory. And I thought about, like, this cheeseburger, you know, how do I eat this cheeseburger to the glory of God? God, I don't want this cheeseburger. You, it's for you that I eat. The, you know, it's just get myself in pretzels about it. But to somewhat cut to the chase this morning, I, I want to put it to you that on a very basic level, to glorify God or to give God glory is to, to make the invisible qualities of God perceptible. To make the invisible qualities of God perceptible to others in such a way that they're valued as they should be. To bring glory to God or to glorify God is to help make the invisible qualities of God perceptible. And I, I, they can be physical qualities like his cloud, though God made sure people could see the physical qualities, which, which are really metaphors. God doesn't have a physical form. So those point to spiritual qualities that become visible to our understanding, to our minds, in such a way that they're valued as they should be. To bring glory to God is to make the invisible qualities of God perceptible to others in such a way that they're valued as they should be. In the Bible, when something is rightly glorified, it's, it's both revered, or, I'm sorry, revealed for what it is, and it's valued for what it is. It's both revealed for what it is, and it's valued for what it is. It's invisible or hidden character is made visible and clear, and that visible character is rightly valued for what it is. And when I say visible, I'm using a human word of our sight to really speak to spiritual visibility. One of the most important moments in human history that, that helps us understand this idea of glory or glorifying is recorded in Exodus 33. Moses is leading this infant nation Israel into and under a, a covenant with God. It's a new covenant for them. To us now, it's the old covenant. But he's leading them at a time when they, they hardly knew anything about God. This is just a month, a few months after Israel leaves Egypt. And there's almost assuredly, there's no scripture. There's no Bible. There are no prophets. There are no Psalms. Nothing to tell these people who God is. Nothing to reveal God to them. And in the midst of this crisis where they've started worshiping the golden calf after all the miracles he's done in Egypt, Moses, he pleads with God. God, God says he's almost ready to leave them and, and let Moses and others and angels go with them. And he's just, they've just trounced on God's heart through this golden calf worship. And Moses says, no, you, you have to go with us. And then he says this, he says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And it can seem strange to our ears to think, well, didn't, I mean, we, we have the Bible. We have all these prophets. We have the gospel. We have Jesus Christ. 
it can be hard for us to get into the core of what Moses is asking. And I think Moses is asking, I barely know who you are, right? I don't have Genesis. I don't have David. I don't have Isaiah. I don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't have Paul. I don't have Ephesians. I don't have Revelation. Who are you? You did some incredible stuff in Egypt that was mind-blowing, but I don't know your heart. I see some clouds sometimes. I see fire and smoke. But who are you? And what is God's response? He says, okay, Moses, I'll show you my glory. And he, listen to what he says. He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. He doesn't simply say, I'll show up in a cloud, though he does. He says, I'll show, I'll cause my goodness to pass before you. And then he comes to Moses in a physical expression of a cloud, but that's not the biggest deal here. Because as Moses sees sort of this, this back end, this glimmer of God's glory, he hears these words from God. And here's what God says. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Moses says, show me your glory. And God not only expresses a physical sign of his presence, but more importantly, he explains who he is to Moses. Here's who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But just, by no means clearing the guilty. God in response to Moses' plea, show me your glory, reveals who he is. What was invisible or hidden in Moses' understanding about who God was becomes clear. That's the showing, the revealing of God's glory. We might use a definition like John's Piper, John Piper's for glory. The glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. I love that. The glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. So someone's, God's glory is, is his qualities made visible. And to glorify him is to show those qualities. When God is glorified, it doesn't make him holy or loving or just or good. It means that those things that he's always been are now revealed or seen in public. In such a way that they can be perceived and have their effect on the people who see them. And when, when Moses experienced this meeting with God, the Bible says that the strangest thing happens. It says his face shines. There was an undeniable effect on Moses that was physical because of God's physical expression. But the internal effect on him is right there. It says that when Moses heard these words, he quickly bowed his head toward earth and worshiped. 
And so we saw the effect on Moses. God's glory, his inner nature was perceived and Moses' face miraculously shines and his heart worships. So glory isn't what he happens simply on the outside, but what happens also on the inside. A man might say about his wife, my wife is beautiful, but you know he's not really seeing her, and you wonder if he really understands that. But if he says, my wife is beautiful to me, he, he sees the glory of her heart, he sees the, the beauty of her face, and it comes out, there's a response in his words. So God being glorified involves both the truth revealed, the glory seen, but the truth, the glory received in such a way that it affects those who see it. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, he lived in a time when people were not perceiving or understanding God. They were not seeing God's glory and their lives reflected that. Their lives were lives, Habakkuk says, of violence and bloodshed and iniquity. It testified to their not seeing God, his goodness, his love, his worth, his justice. Habakkuk says God will not allow this to continue in this universe forever. He says a day is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. One day Habakkuk says people will not be ignorant of God's glory. The truth of his character and his heart will be seen and we will know it's seen because the earth will be filled with lives that testify to that. Lives changed. Love, tenderness, faithfulness, fear of the Lord, belief in his good heart will, will not show in mere head knowledge, but in the lives that are changed. So I want to bring this into communion this morning. One of the most crucial moments about God's glory since that day with Moses, now some to Jesus 1,500 years before, occurs on the night of the Last Supper. Jesus has spent the whole evening telling his closest friends about his love for them, about loving each other, about him laying down his life for them, his promise of resurrection, his promise not to leave them, but to come in the Holy Spirit, and his promise of his presence in their persecution that's coming. But now he's done teaching them. All that he's promised now needs to be secured, not by his teaching, but by his sacrifice, this ultimate sacrifice of love through the cross. And so he turns to his father for strength, and this is what he says. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I want to walk over these few verses carefully for a moment. First, Jesus says, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. What's this hour? 
Many times we've been told in John's gospel that Jesus' hour had not yet come. When the leaders try to kill Jesus in John 7, we're told they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. When the Pharisees tried to kill him in chapter 8, we're told they could not because his hour had not yet come. In other words, when, when Jesus' hour would come, the leaders would indeed be able to seize him and kill him. And so as Jesus approaches the Last Supper, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. This fast approaching hour troubles Jesus' soul. This is Jesus, God the Son. And his soul is greatly troubled by this hour. This hour creates a longing in God the Son to say to his Father, Save me from this. This is the hour in which the Lamb of God will be slain for the sins of the world. This is the hour in which God's Son will be humiliated and mocked and beaten and spat upon. Bone and metal will whip his back to shreds. A crown will pierce and dig into his skull. Iron will be nailed into his wrists and into his ankles or his feet. He'll be stabbed deep in the chest with a spear. But this hour brings something much worse to him. In this hour, he will bear invisible, untold shame and condemnation and horror as all the sins of the world are laid on him and he's brought into dreadful, hellish judgment. God the Son must now submit to be crushed, as Isaiah says in the 53rd chapter there, crushed by God the Father. He must become sin for us and receive God's just wrath against sin so that all those he came to save could be saved. This is his hour. But look at what he prays about this hour. This is astounding. I mean, if Moses got to see something that day on the mountain, we get to see something so much more. Jesus prays about this hour he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Do you, you. See what Jesus asks about this hour. He says, glorify me in this hour. Glorify me through this hour so that I can glorify you. Remember what we said earlier about what, what glory and being glorified is. To, to bring glory to God is to make the invisible qualities of God perceptible to others in such a way that they're valued as they should be. To glorify God is to show him. Jesus is implicitly saying that this horrible torture, this murder of God the Son and this sin-covered Hell receiving, atoning sacrifice, he will become that this is the revelation of who God is revealed to the universe. 
Psalm 19 says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. But John 17 says, so much more so does the horrifying crucifixion of the Messiah proclaim the glory of God. Jesus says to his father, Father, show me to the world on this cross, through this cross, so that I can show you to the world. Glorify the Son so the Son might glorify you. Please, God, let them see us. And this is the whole point of John's gospel. In the very beginning of John's gospel, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. We have seen his showing us who he is. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. Of course, Moses saw a little bit of him. But this glory is so much more that John says no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus has made him known. And in between these verses, John gives a nod to Moses in that revelation in Exodus 33. He says, the law came through Moses. That's what we saw through Moses, the Ten Commandments. But grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Moses didn't see him like this. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas says to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Thomas, don't you know me? After I've been with you so long, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And now, through this awful hour, through the cross, Jesus is making God the Father known as he has never been known. And yes, on the cross, Jesus reveals God is the God of the law, as Moses saw. Jesus reveals God's heart of justice and righteousness, the righteous judge who must judge and punish sin. But on the cross, Jesus reveals something even more astounding, even more astounding than what Moses, Moses saw. God's heart of infinite selfless love. This holy God wants none to perish. He wants none to perish so much so that he takes their perishing on himself. On himself. This holy God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, the prophets tell us. But Jesus tells us that he, he takes no delight in the death of the wicked so much that, that he becomes their wickedness and their death so that they would not perish. This holy God longs to have compassion, the prophet says. He loves mercy and delights to abundantly pardon. But through Jesus, this God of the Old Testament, we find that he's made a way for us to be pardoned to us to taste God's mercy and to live in his compassion by becoming our sin and our wickedness and being punished in our stead. 
Do you want to know who God is? Do you want to know who God is? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look and understand Christ of the cross. Do you want to know what Jeremiah 31.3 says when God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's not a Hallmark card. It's his crushed, bloodied, beaten son hanging on the cross for you because he loves you. And because your soul is at stake. And because he longs for you not to perish. Do you want to know what Psalm 103 means when it says that for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. I mean, here's the earth. We got it right in front of us. There are the heavens, right? If we just keep going up, I mean, I don't know what scientists will tell us in a hundred years, but right now they tell us we can't stop going up. We can't stop going up. It's infinite. Do we want to know what that means? When God says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is my steadfast love towards you who fear me. It's not a sentimental saying. Look at the cross. And this only becomes confirmed more as Jesus goes on in this prayer. Verse 2, he says, first he says, glorify me so that I might glorify you in this hour. And then he says in verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus makes clear why he's asking God to glorify him so that he can glorify his father. Why does Jesus say, glorify me so that I can glorify you? He says it in verse two, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. First, Jesus asks, glorify me through the cross so that you might be glorified, revealed, shown for who you are. And now Jesus connects that desire with its goal so that people might be saved. So we might colloquialize this prayer in verse 1. Father, show people who you are through my death and resurrection. And then the next part, verse 2, might be phrased, so that I might be your means of bringing eternal life to all the people you've given me to save. I, I say this because this is how people are saved. They come to see God's glory. They come to see specifically his glory through Jesus. They see God's beauty in his holiness and love. And because of that, they long for him because they see it. And by God's grace, they're able to trust him when he says, I am your only hope. Turn to me and be saved. I will forgive you. I will give you peace. I will be the atoning sacrifice for everything that you have done and everything that you will do. Think about this for a moment. When Jesus says then at the end of verse 3, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. He, he's not starting a new subject 
Like verse one is, God, I want people to see your glory through me. And then, hey, do you know what eternal life is? It's knowing God and me. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, God, show who you are through me. Because that is the means. People seeing you, knowing who you are, that's the means by which people will experience eternal life. At its core, eternal life is not an issue of longevity. It's an issue of truly seeing and knowing God, of really seeing him for who he is and valuing him for who he is and doing that forever and ever and ever. This is what we were made for, brothers and sisters. This is what we were made for. The glory of God in Christ, seeing, beholding, the deep and daily glory of God given to us. And, you know, this changes the shape of things like whatever you do in word or deed, give glory to God. Whether you eat or drink, give glory to God. Because now, instead of I'm going to perform for you, God, it's, no, I'm living life in such a way that my life says who God is. My life says who God is. And so, this is a very soft Paul example, but eating a delicious meal, whether you eat or drink, something as simple as grace and just thanking God is saying, God, you're really generous. I'm not going to eat this food as if it's random and I'm a function of coincidence and simple math over billions of years coming together to make me in this steak and this salad. No, no, God, this is a precious gift from your heart. I'm going to eat this with gratefulness and enjoyment because you're a God who gives things to enjoy. And when we're in a trial, as Deb talked about or Kim's going through, giving glory to God isn't being perfect and strong and pulling yourself by your bootstraps. No, it's, it's depending on God and trusting him and crying out to him and de- crying and leaning on him through, in all of your weakness because you're pointing to him and saying, oh, he's my only hope. He is dependable. He will answer. He will help. I, I am weak, but he is strong. That brings glory to God. More so than if you toughed it out on your own and with your own willpower. What is that? That doesn't necessarily communicate anything about God. One of the most beautiful verses in scripture is Psalm 51, 15. It says, call to me in the day of trouble. I will answer you and you will glorify me. That's one concept. When I'm in trouble and God answers and I experience that answer, God says, that's how you glorify me by receiving my rescue and living as if I'm true and faithful and strong and powerful. Not you so much, but me. When, when Abraham was old and Sarah was, her womb was dried up and, and it says that Abraham, even though they were ancient, you know, a hundred years old or so, it says that he, Romans says that he didn't stop believing God, but he gave glory to God by saying God can do this. It says that that belief that God can do this, it gave God glory. It showed who God was, not how great Abraham was. In fact, Abraham's impossible odds and the infirmity of his flesh and Sarah's dried up room, that made it sure that they would not get the glory for what the miracle of Isaac was. It made it sure that God would. It showed who God was. And so when we live for God's glory, we live in such a way that our lives say, Oh, he's good. He's dependable. He will help me. 
through this trial. He can get me out of this temptation. He will be here for me again and again. And, and I'm going to cry out to him and weep if I need to and walk through the Psalms where my faith is fragile, but it's expressed in fragile fellowship with the psalmist who's saying, how long, O Lord? But I'm still talking to God. I'm still saying, how long, O Lord? I'm not giving up on you. You know, sooner or later we find out that you cannot put diesel gasoline in an engine designed to run on standard fuel. And gas stations are helpful about this now because when you try to put a diesel fuel handle in a standard fuel tank, it doesn't fit. It won't let you. I mean, I've, I've made that mistake several times. And you, bah, bah, what's wrong with this? I've gotten mad at the handle. What's wrong with these crazy people? <laughs> it's like, it's diesel fuel. You're going to destroy your car. Thank you. Thank you, gas station people. Our engines that are standard fuel engines are not made to run on diesel fuel. And, and likewise, the fuel of God's glory must be the fuel of our heart. We, you can't put the fuel of the glory of social media or movies or children or food or marriage or ministry or America or friendship or sex or safety. All these things that can be great gifts from God and, and perhaps the most deceptive great gifts from God are a sense of ethics and and. Not necessarily a gift of God. My point is that, that what can be more subtle to run on in our lives than even enjoyment of movies too much or ministry too much is, is when we put the, the glory of our strong ethics or our stick to or our good works or our personal morality in the engine of our, of our soul. And we seek to run on that. And, and we deprive our soul of the fuel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That he is our righteousness. He is our mercy. He is our strength. We, we can't run without him without corroding our engine initially. At the gas station, you find out quick that you're putting the wrong fuel in your heart. But, but in our lives, we can run far too long on the wrong fuel. And eventually things break down. And that's why it's so important to take time for fellowship and the word and to feast on his glory. It's, it's why we're taking communion today. God says to us in communion, remember, remember, my son poured out for you. Feast again on my faithfulness to you. Feast again on my forgiveness for you. Feast on my righteousness as your righteousness. Feast on my son who has opened a door to me that no one can shut. Yes, I am holy, more than you could ever understand. Yes, I am righteous and just, more than you could ever make up for in your do-gooding. And so feast on my son who has taken all of your sins because I'm so loving and not just holy so that you can be in my presence forever, forgiven, kept. I'll close with this. You know, one of the wonderful things about feasting on God is that it helps us be more hungry to feast on God. We've talked about this before. When we eat in the natural world, food, natural food, we, we get full. We stop eating. When we feast on God, we get full and hungry at the same time. Piper says it like this. When you drink at the river of life and eat the bread of heaven and know that you have found the end of all your longings, you only get hungrier for God. 
As C.S. Lewis said, our best havings are wantings. Our best havings are wantings. He means our spiritual wantings. The, the more deeply you walk with Christ, the hungrier you get for Christ. The more at home you are with Christ, the more homesick you get for him. The more you want all the fullness of God, even when you're full of him. If you don't feel, Piper says, if you don't feel strong desire for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk so deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your, stole, your soul is stuffed with small things. There's no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God, he says, and it can be awakened. Hallelujah, it can be awakened. Almost every time I meet with you, and I preach God's word, or I have communion, or I go to a care group, or I have a quiet time. It gets awakened a little bit, at least, if not a lot. There is an appetite for God, and it can be awakened. Hallelujah. Let's ask God right now to awaken our appetite for him by showing us again his glory through his son sacrificed for us. Would you do that now in prayer? Just ask him, God, use this, use this morning together, use this communion we're about to take to awaken my appetite for you. Remind me of your glory, your goodness. Show me who you are, that I might want you even more. Let's pray that in the quietness of our hearts for a moment, and we'll take communion in just a second. 